Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Wood and this is a High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about topics ranging from peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery to longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up when you're 110. Each of these elements has real significance. Now that we've got through the festive season, your thoughts may have turned to preparing for your events in the summer. In our SWAT community, we've got hundreds of training plans available for a wide range of events, as well as individual swim, bike and run races. And we're adding more each week. On top of that, we've got a thriving Facebook community with over 150 like-minded athletes, with me as their coach, mentor, and accountability partner. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, please listen out for more details in the outro. If you've ever suffered from specific or non-specific back pain, you'll know just how debilitating it can be. While you might avoid lifting heavy loads because of the risk of putting your back out, cyclists often suffer from sore lower backs from the hours spent hunched over the handlebars. Today's guest, Dr. Stuart McGill, is a distinguished professor emeritus from the University of Waterloo in Toronto, Canada, where he was a professor for 30 years. Stuart has authored several books, and you can see links for those in the show notes below, and his advice is often sought by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups, and elite athletes and teams from around the world. So, If you want to learn about how to fix your own back pain and enhance both injury resilience and performance, you will find this conversation super interesting. So let's hear from Dr. McGill. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Stuart McGill. (laughs) Good morning, uh, Simon, or I guess where you are, good afternoon. It is. So you're in in Canada, Eastern Canada, right? Uh, yes, I'm in central Ontario. Uh, we're halfway between North Bay and Toronto. So uh, about a, cu- a couple hundred kilometers to each of those. Okay. And I can see, um, is that, is that actually, that's not your background. That is your clinic there, is it with the weights machine and all the spinal, um, it is there. You won't there. find too many places with an exam table in front of, a. Uh, seven or eight hundred kilos available on a rack. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, and I guess you'd ex- you you wouldn't encourage too many people to be lifting that sort of weight without the proper training because they might end up in your clinic as a patient. Well, uh, that's true. I happen to get some of the strongest men and women uh, on this planet here, though, so I need uh, to push them a little bit and that's what those uh, magnitudes are for <laughs> but uh, no they're not, they're certainly not for me and they're not for the average person at all let's dig in a little bit about how you arrived at the point you're at now Stuart as a as a world expert in back pain and and sort of solutions for helping humans um and well humans normal humans and athlete humans um to manage those so uh, can you can you give us a little bit of a potted history I did my PhD in spine biomechanics, became a professor, and began a laboratory where we would measure in people the stress distribution inside their their, their backs, so to speak, with the muscles, ligaments, discs, uh, etc. 
And I only started with one question, how does the spine work? It was as simple as that. So we would probe and investigate the system, different loads, different sports, all different occupational activities. And then I realized I had to create the injuries to understand them. So we we created a, uh, a laboratory equipped for injuring cadaveric spines, both <laughs> humans, uh, which are hard to get, obviously, and, and animal substitutes. And uh, then I created a radiology uh, imaging suite so I could understand what people see and interpret on uh, films. Uh, do they link with the uh, mechanical uh, scenarios? And then we did epidemiological studies. And then I started a clinic at the university at the request of the, the university, an experimental research clinic. And it's the only clinic that I know of, Simon, where we followed up with every single patient we ever saw. So we know the subcategory of their pain, oh, what we suggested they did, whether uh, they complied and their outcome after two years. So we know exactly our score for different subcategories of back pain. And then something very strange happened. I became, uh, I'm gonna call it an accidental clinician. Uh, medical groups would ask me to come and speak at their meetings, orthopedic meetings and sports performance meetings, neurology meetings. And they said, would you see a patient with us? We have this stubborn, difficult athlete. Uh, what you just showed us might have some influence here. And I said, well, no, I'm not a clinician. And slowly I did morph into this clinician, realizing that I see the patient in quite a different light than the traditionally trained uh, medic. So that's the story in a nutshell. And I see uh, athletes m mostly here now. Mm -hmm. uh, they fly in from around the world uh, two days a week. Wow. I, um, in an early part of my career, I had a personal training business. Um, my wife at the time was a physiotherapist. And so we used to get a lot of people who came in to the clinic um, with what they would call a bad back. And um, I would often say to them, oh, I've not, we've not seen you. Before I found out why they were there again, I'd see them in the waiting area and ask them, oh, I've not seen you for a bit. How come you're here? Oh, yeah, I've got a bad back again. Oh, um, did they not cure you for that before or sort you out? Yes, yes, but I stopped doing all of the exercises that I was supposed to do. So now here I am again. Um, but I'm always... I had, I had personal training clients as well who would come in and say, well, I can't train today because I've got a bad back. But of course, it, it, once we started moving and getting to do some gentle exercise, by the end of the session, things always seemed a little bit better. So I wondered if you could, is it possible to outline what really are the problems that you see people suffering from when it when we talk about a bad back? You know, How many of them are related to issues with the spine itself and the bones and the um, the discs and the vertebra and how many of that is muscular or how much of that is muscular oh, okay well you gave me two or three questions i there, did so i'm sorry so can, yes can i can i <laughs> go back to the first one my, my sure. brain can uh, stay on topic one at a time <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start answering that with some perspective and some people might find this controversial in our world you may have heard the term nonspecific back pain. Oh, mm -hmm. the doc says I've got nonspecific back pain. That's not good enough for us. We don't believe it exists. 
to us, all back pain is uh, very specific. So we can't talk about people with bad backs anymore. All we can do is talk about the individual in front of us. If we can thoroughly assess them to understand their specific mechanism or pathway to their pain, we now have a bit of a roadmap uh, to guide us as to first stop the cause and wind down the pain and then rebuild whatever the deficits exist to gain uh, pain-free movement and then from there move on to uh, restoring athleticism. Now some evidence on that. We've done numerous studies with athletic groups from different sports and occupational workers, and I call them occupational athletes. Uh, one study we did on men who chrome car bumpers at the Chrysler car manufacturing facility mm -hmm. and, and another group who climbed hydro poles. They were hydro workers. Uh, we had 76 men. 26 of them or something, I've forgotten the numbers exactly, but something like that, 26 of them every year missed a few days of work with a back pain episode, an acute attack. So you could say they had chronic recurring uh, back pain. And then we measured their ability to move, their stress concentrations, their strength, endurance, flexibility, their psychosocial profiles, their health mm -hmm. markers of whether they smoked, all these kinds of things. It was a very expensive study to perform. What do you think the difference was between workers who never had a day missed of work lifting uh, 30 kilo car bumpers all day? versus the ones who did every year have a real nasty flare-up with their back. C can you hazard a guess as to what some of those features might be? Um, so the lifting 30-kilo bumpers, I, I would think that, um, well, logically, I would say there's got to be some element of lifting technique in there. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I know who I'm talking to. Good for you. Most people would say, oh, strength. The, perp the people who got hurt were probably lacking strength. And then therefore, they would start building their strength in their rehab program. It was precisely the opposite. The ones who had recurrent back issues had stronger backs when we measured them. But they had poorer lifting technique in that they overused their backs when they lifted and they underused their hips and legs and they had less endurance so even though they were stronger by the time they got a bit tired their form broke down and then the back strength took over and uh, created the stress concentrations and it was usually a disc bulge family uh of uh of uh, uh trouble so there's an example of why do they have recurrent bad backs? A, they didn't understand what the mechanism was, and B, they didn't have the supporting endurance for their strength, and they couldn't keep that form as they lifted mm -hmm. uh, car bumpers, as they uh, became tired. So I could give study after study uh, on that. Uh, you know, the next person... Uh, we do pattern recognition, Simon. When a person comes in, we begin the interview and we, we say, well, you know, tell us why you're here. And we don't coach them any more than that. And they might say, well, you know, when I first get out of bed in the morning, my back is really grumpy. And then once I get moving, uh, it it 
clears up. Well, interestingly enough, not always, but the more common pathway for that type of pain. Are you doing a video on this as well as the audio? I am. Okay. So this disc is normal. L3, L5 is uh, L5 down here is normal, but L4 has been damaged. Now, when you damage a ligament uh, or uh, a soft tissue around a joint, it gets a little bit of laxity to it. Think of an mm -hmm. ACL deficient knee. It has mm -hmm. a positive drawer test. So sheer instability shows the disc uh, or the joint has been damaged. So this one has been damaged a little bit. Observe, I'm just going to apply a general torque. Do you see how the majority of the motion is taking place at the joint where it's now experiencing sheer micro movement? So can you imagine laying in bed, getting into a side laying posture, and now that joint shifts across to the side? Mm -hmm. They wake up in the morning and they say, you know, I've got pain in the left side of my back. It's going into my buttock a little bit. And then they lay on the other side and, they, you know, the pain shifted. These are all patterns associated with a little bit of joint instability true mm -hmm. instability so in uh, in in that particular case the reason they have a bad back is they failed to 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 manage that instability through stabilizing exercise through strategic mobility transferring responsibility to the hips uh through not moving well during the day and not allowing that instability to slowly stiffen up over time. And it will, given the, the uh, right conditions. So there's a little bit of a start on a discussion why people have recurrent bad backs. Uh, of course, we really get into the weeds sometimes. I could probably name a hundred pathways to getting a bad back. They might have a cyst on a nerve root or something more uncommon uh, like that. So in summary to the first question, do a thorough assessment, understand the pathway and address it. The second one, I think you asked me about how, how much is, is muscular uh, versus in the spine. Let me give you an example. I'm going to stand up now and uh, if, if I could palpate my erector spinae with my hand, um, I can seek a balance point when I posture my ears over my shoulders, over my hips, where there's no muscle activity at all. Mm -hmm. But if I, if I round my shoulders and poke my chin a little bit, those muscles suddenly become active and rock hard. So if I said, Simon, put a pound of butter in your hand and walk around holding the pound of butter all day long you would have a very severe muscular ache in the elbow flexors. Mm -hmm. What's the solution? Put the butter down and relax. So with that person who has muscularly generated pain, we can coach them in a strategy. It may be bring the hips a little bit forward. Maybe we have to do a little bit of thoracic extension and all of a sudden they can achieve muscular relaxation by stacking their mass and their muscular based backache goes away. The corollary of that though, is if someone has the micro movement situation that I just described or a bit of a disc bulge quite often muscles contract in sympathy to the underlying spine pathology, which 
you know, depends on the population. I, I will say I, I know who I'm speaking to and uh, a triathlon coach. One of the patterns of the aging triathlete or a lot of them, you know, as they start ending their career, they might go into master's running or something like that. The tendency is to become a little bit kyphotic. And uh, if that's the particular uh, pathway, we might do some uh, strategic thoracic extension, you know, uh, opening up that area and, uh, and addressing that particular uh, cause. But anyway, uh, the hips, all very important in whether you're addressing a muscular contraction that doesn't release because of holding the pound of butter, so to speak, mm. or uh, whether they have true disruption uh, in the spine that has to be addressed by a totally different uh, approach. But the summary to that is the assessment will reveal uh, the best way forward. Anyway, I know you asked me two or three questions there. I, I hope I captured them. Yeah, I think so, Stuart. And, it, and it, as you were describing, uh, particularly the sort of visual um, demonstration you gave there of um, postures, and uh, it started to make me wonder about modern day living, about how we probably spend more time in a sitting position. You talked about that chin poke and that sort of kyphotic spinal position where people are sort of sitting down and peering into computers a lot. Um and I wondered if you've observed over the years uh, an increase in um, lifestyle related, related back problems that are probably due to those maladies I've just mentioned. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting question. And I'm old enough to remember those days. And I have some scientific evidence on this as well. I was a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the university. And in the first course that the students took, it was measuring uh kinesiological variables you know various cardiovascular mono, uh, variables uh uh joint range of motion simple strength and endurance measures etc so we would be able to create a fitness profile of the students as they came in on their first day at uni and then we tracked those scores over time you remember when the personal computer Mm -hmm. became available to kids and high school learning changed being more computer-based and whatnot. There was a real change around the year 2000. We noticed in those scores, the kids prior to computers were much fitter mm -hmm. and lighter. The uh, body mass index uh, substantially increased over that two-year period. Uh, their strength was down, their endurance was down, uh, etc. And then, uh, and, and I, I attribute that to that lifestyle brought on by computers. Now, interestingly enough, I retired uh, seven years ago now from the university. However, the trend was reversing. The fitness world had uh, made its contributions and people were becoming fitter. But now all of a sudden, a whole new subcategory, shall we say, of back injuries became more common. And uh, should I call them back injuries? Well, let's call them pathways, pain pathways. And here's what happened. 
people then and now, uh, there's many more people who spend eight hours of the day in front of a computer than 30 years ago when, mm -hmm. when I was at that age. Then they go to the gym for an hour, very dedicated. And it's so interesting that if you sit for eight hours and then go to the gym and do deadlifts, deadlifts are not the antidote for sitting for eight hours. In fact, in many cases, they're compounding. Now we see disc bulges, uh, much more common in uh, these people who are fitter because they go to the gym. However, they sit uh, for eight hours as well, not undoing the changes in their body that have occurred from sitting uh, mm. the hips, the hips change, uh, the endurance profile of those muscles that are quite underused. Uh, and then to go and lift, uh, way too heavy, uh, for the average non-athlete, shall we say, mm. uh, not respecting how long it takes the body, the joints, the collagen, to adapt to that heavy load. You know, I've worked with some of the grand old men and women of uh, powerlifting. It took them years mm. to get to the level of supporting those heavy loads. And then, you know, <laughs> there'll be someone on, on the internet saying, well, you know, you're not a real woman until you can deadlift twice your body weight. And I think, oh my goodness, for the average woman, no wonder we're seeing the, here, them here with fractured M plates and disc bulges, mm -hmm. uh, etc. So, you know, of course there's a time and a place, but there's a little bit of a introductory discussion on, uh, this, this lifestyle change that has occurred and mm. a little bit of a reversal and how what we're seeing uh you go to the uh, local orthopedic surgeon at the hospital and ask them their opinion on who are they seeing for really nasty disc bulges and the older men and women uh, the older surgeons who've had the perspective of time will say yeah we're seeing a lot more disc bulges probably due to inappropriate deadlifting and heavy weights at the gym that they weren't doing 20 and 30 years ago. So obviously I'm not criticizing mm. heavy weights for the right person. It's the right thing to do for the mm. average person. It isn't the way to a lifelong, healthy musculoskeletal system. <laughs> How's yeah. that for an opinion? <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's great, Stuart. And, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned earlier that you've been to Yorkshire a few times. Yorkshire people are known for the straight talking. So I love a straight answer like that that gets right to the point <laughs> and, and tells it how it is, really. We don't we don't need to sugarcoat it. And uh, I know there's a preponderance of um, authors who've written books encouraging people to lift heavy shit. And, you know, I can understand the meaning behind that and and their sentiments, but I think if if again if you're a female and you've been told that the one of the antidotes to menopause is to go out there and lift heavy shit, or if you're a, an older male and you're losing some muscle mass, you need to lift heavy. It's got to be put into context, hasn't it? And you can't just pick up a weight and try to lift the heaviest thing, thing, and it's going to reverse all of that stuff in in the manner you've just described because um, <laughs> you, you're probably going to create more problems than you are going to solve. Yeah. When you work with the uh, super athletes, and I'm thinking of people who are Olympic lifters, and I, I mean real Olympic lifters, mm -hmm. not doing some Olympic lifting at, at the local gym. I'm talking about people at the Olympics. And when you see how much effort they put into the perfect lift, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, wrote a book with Brian Carroll who has the heaviest squat in human history, 1,306 pounds. He squatted. Brian will tell you, I've had one perfect squat in my life. <laughs> and it gives perspective to people to realize that the technique to lift heavy and how to make your body resilient, don't allow a stress concentration anywhere to exceed the tolerance at that particular level, allow adaptation. I mean, if you do a heavy squat workout or a heavy deadlift workout, the grand old men and women take a week off. Mm. They don't, they don't do it three or four times a week and then on their day off go and run 5k. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it, there's a bit of mythology, uh, I'm afraid. And, uh, but if you want to be that kind of athlete, these are the training regimens that, uh, uh, you learn, uh, when you work with these, uh, mm. grand masters. Yeah, I guess. A super heavy squat workout like that really taxes the central nervous system, doesn't it? And it takes much, much longer for the CNS to recover than it does um, for muscle soreness to disappear. And I think that's where a lot of people get um, confused is they think, well, my legs aren't sore anymore, so I can go and do another heavy workout. But perhaps their coordination or their ability to adjust to things isn't quite the same because the central nervous system still fatigued. I have two comments on that. May I give them? Sure. Okay, I'm not worried about muscle soreness. What I'm worried about is the micro damage to non-muscle tissue. For example, uh, when you uh, look at a, a spine and a disc, the top and bottom of the barrel of the vertebra, that's Mm -hmm. cartilage. Mm -hmm. And little micro fractures occur with very heavy deadlifts and squats. Mm. So when you look at a grand old man or woman of, of uh, strength, the radiologist will say they have sclerotic end plates where they've actually turned to very tough bone. So they had a little micro fracture and they took five days off to scaffold in the building blocks of bone. Now I can talk about the piezoelectric mechanism of how bone rebuilds from being stressed but basically an electric charge forms and that electric charge attracts free charged ions of calcium and magnesium the things that build bones they attach to where the damage is but it takes five days to scaffold in that attachment if you go and do squats the next day it breaks off those fresh bonds they're not chemically strong enough Mm. yet so that's why when you train heavy, uh, the days in between are uh, very, very important for laying down that heavy bone. If you train too often, that microfracture accumulates. And uh, I didn't know if we were going to get into this, but we'll see all kinds of uh, damage uh, occurring to the uh, end plates. All these models, by the way, are made by a company, dynamicdiscdesigns.com. And they took a lot of the damage that we were able to document in the laboratory and uh, they made models. So there is a sacrum, uh, L5, and they've cut off L4 just so you can see the end plate. So now I'm going to squeeze the 
uh, spine, pressurize the nuclear gel in the middle of the disc, and you can see the end plate fracture there and the nucleus squirting up into the vertebral body. So when we look at a, a spine like this, where we have dyed the nucleus uh, a chromium blue, and I'm just going to pull the plug out so you can observe. I'm going to squeeze the spine, and you see the disc nucleus squirt up into the vertebral body. Mm. And these microfractures, Schmorl's nodes, end plate fractures, are very common with excessive loads, deadlifting that exceed the uh, strength uh, in the um, uh, in the lifter. And to densify those bones takes uh, takes years and uh, a lot of other. Anyway, there's a, a little bit of a thought on um, adapting muscle mm. versus adapting the collagen tissues versus adapting the skeleton. And and again, I know who I'm talking to. You take the average triathlete and you pick up their leg on the table here and you do a hip exam. Then you pick up the leg of an Olympic sprinter and you do the same exam. Simon, the difference is astounding. The density of bone in that sprinter who does do uh, mm. some strength workouts and heavy uh, exertions versus the uh, the, the uh, more endurance trained uh, running athlete. It's, mm. it's astounding. I have a question about squatting and deadlifting then not not to the extreme levels you've mentioned there but for endurance athletes I, I know but you know I've, I have a strength conditioning background as well and I've worked with various professional teams where my job's me my, my job's mostly been to make sure that those players are fit enough to take you know to to turn up for the technical training and keep them in good shape but obviously there are individual um there are individual strength programs that they have as well but for triathletes I know those ones that I don't have any input to their strength program um, will go to the gym and they've either read or they've been directed by somebody there who says, you know, you need to do deadlifts and squats or deadlifts and squats. And mostly it's back squats because most people don't have the flexibility in the shoulders to be able to get the hands underneath the bar to be able to do an effective front squat. And now I'm seeing people prescribing deadlifts, but saying, well, you, you know, some people saying you should use a bar and have the bar in front of the feet there or, um, you know, just above the, the toes and, and lift from the front, which challenges a lot of people's flexibility. And others are using these hex bars where you stand inside it and so that the position of the weights is slightly further back. Um, what, what, are your, what are your views on including deadlifting and squatting within a program? Do you, um, I'm going to ask you that one first and I'll come back to the next question. Uh, all right. Yeah, don't overload me with... Yeah, too many thoughts here. Are we talking about a triathlete here? Yes. Yeah, we're talking about okay. endurance athletes, but but people whose primary purpose is endurance activity rather than strength, and that's just a supplement to uh, build resilience. No, no, Simon, it's got to be much more specific than that. So, are we talking triathletes? Endurance athletes yes. is yes. far too broad a spectrum for me. So okay. You, you got to keep narrowing me down. Triathletes. Okay. Yep. yep. Then I would ask the person who's recommending heavy lifts, how many world-class triathletes have you measured and worked with? And if the answer is zero, uh, which I would predict. So I, I have worked with and measured some of the best. And now everyone has 
a back issue who comes to see me. No one comes to me for general work. It's only because they have uh, a nagging uh, back issue. Um, not one of them would be doing heavy deadlifts uh, or squats. Now, let's back up a little bit. What are the requirements and demands of the sport that you must meet? Uh, you can start naming some of those off, but I can tell you, I've, again, I've worked with Olympic medalist swimmers, mm. uh, uh, the medley, every stroke. I had one woman who couldn't do a push up, and yet she was the fastest freestyler in her country. Now, mm. <laughs> was she strong? She was a fish. She could do beautiful Fish-like movements, very supple ankles and big feet. She she was able to turn her body into a fish and create that whip-like action to be the fastest woman in her country. Couldn't do a push-up. Now, do you think if she could do a push-up, she would be faster? And I would argue probably not. But my job was to deal with her back and her lack of an ability to do a push-up was a problem in the pathway that we needed to stabilize her, her back injury. So there's an example. Now let's look at other requirements of the triathlon, cycling and running. Cycling, if you can't get down into a good windage position and draft, you don't have a hope. So now tell me what a deadlift uh, needs or, or contributes. The power production in a cycle uh, is not as hip-centric as people think. It's more knees. Cyclists have big quadriceps, big hamstrings, and not tremendous gluteal development. <laughs> Again, I've, I've, I've measured this. So when you get someone into a windage position, which is spread out over the arrow bars, typically, if they are a, a triathlon, it's heavy leg musculature. I would use a non-weighted with a bar. We wouldn't use a bar. I would use um, uh, uh, belt squats. If you just look outside a BackFit Pro here into the training room, I don't know if I should turn the light on there or not, but do you see the belt squat machine back through the into the uh, yes. next room there. So now we can build tremendous leg horsepower in the windage position because you can't put a bar on a on an athlete's back in the position of windage that you're trying to create uh, the power for. So if someone says, oh, well, you have to do deadlifts and, and squats, I would say, really, have you gone through the exercise of mm -hmm. what is it that that athlete needs? And, uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with multiple downhill skiers. They fall into the same category. You can't load up their back. They've already got a back injury. They're pounding moguls at 70 miles an hour down a ski slope, mm. but they need tremendous leg power and endurance power. We would build that in the position uh, of windage on a belt squat machine. So I wouldn't go near a, uh, a deadlift bar. Now, the next thing is stiffness. When you measure the great power lifters and the people who are best at performing deadlifts, they have trouble tying their shoes. They have trouble scratching their ear because to carry that much weight down through your body requires stiffness. 
be careful what you ask for. Do you want a tool that's stiffening your body when we're strategically tuning? So the triathlete, I've already said the requirement is this supple fish-like action to be the fastest swimmer. Here, here, here's a little bit of mind thought for you. Think of the first person out of the water in a triathlete, in a triathlon competition. The first person out of phase one. Can you think of one who's won a race? Because I can't. So you get through there. And then when they start to run, notice the running style versus the person who's middle of the pack coming out of the water. Their ankles are loose. They're, 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 sorry, start the bike. The power production, the stiffness through the core, unleashing the power down through the hip, the knee to the crank arm, and then the stiffness that you're trying to create into the bars for the power stroke. Think of the money people produce, put, put into building a stiff-framed bicycle. You need the stiff central frame of the linkage <laughs> uh, to, to be commensurate with that. But then you have to unleash uh, mm. uh, the legs and then the run. Now you want to be a strategic bunny rabbit. And now I want to do the pogo jump. Really tune the, 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 the springs for storage and recovery of elastic energy. Now, mm -hmm. Tell me how the deadlift with a heavy bar contributes to that. I would argue it detunes the athleticism. Mm. So there's some pretty strong opinions uh, for you. Um, but those are uh, th that's a little bit of an essay, I suppose, that mm -hmm. includes this concept of tuning the body. <clears throat> to, to if, if they were just an endurance runner, that would be one thing. But it isn't. It's the swim, the cycle, and the run. And one of the biggest uh, challenges we have in that is to train the transition. And it's very, it's much more difficult for that first person out of the water to transition to the bike because they're a, a fish mm. <laughs> versus the middle of the pack who's not such a good swimmer, but mm. they have that neurology and strength endurance profile to produce bike power. Well, I'll, I can talk about a couple. Um, in in Leeds, particularly, we have uh, Alistair Brownlee and his brother Jonathan, who were um, Olympic medalists. Alistair double Olympic gold. Um, right. Alistair was uh, was often near the very nearly at the front, um, certainly in the front pack, and then would be in the front pack on the bike and would lead the run. Um, but I've known Alistair since he was twelve or thirteen, and he definitely. Um, not fi not so fish-like in the water. You can definitely see a stiffness in the ankles that you don't see in swimmers. Um, and of course, he came from a fell running background as well. And you need that stiffness in the ankle to be able to support those sort of heavy landings on the downhill. Um, but that's triathlons a compromise, isn't it? Um, we also have Jessica Learmonth in Leeds, who is typically coming out of the water first, can ride at the front of the pack. Um, but as with most swimmers, you would probably say she has a slightly heavier upper body build than a lot of the triathletes just because of that upper body musculature she developed. And she had to start with anyway, ankles that were more suited to a swimmer that, that had that floppiness. And so therefore they, it took them quite a long time to develop her running ability to that speed. So that, you know, because the volume, she just couldn't cope with the volume of some of the, um, 
people who'd come from a running background. So this, this definitely, yeah, I, I, I recognize what you're saying there about, uh, you know, that compromise and everything else. Yeah. I would have predicted she maybe not now, I don't know this woman, but uh, I would imagine years ago, she was a bit of a plotter on the run and now mm-hmm. you've stiffened her up, tuned the springs mm-hmm. and turned her into a bit more of a bunny <laughs> rabbit, uh, you know, for using animals like a fish and a bunny yeah, rabbit yeah, yeah. or yeah. a kangaroo uh, or whatever. So whoever worked with her uh, was, was very insightful. And it wasn't, oh, I'm a strength athlete. Uh, I'm going to default to using a bar and pull it off the ground because it's the only tool I know. Mm. You, know you know, that's that kind of, uh, but anyway. Uh, well, I'll give, I'll give Malcolm, some alternatives. I'll, I'll give Malcolm Brown a shout out there because I remember him telling me, you know, he said, we have to be careful with Jessica to build a, build a high intensity running volume up over a number of years. And that's frustrating for her because she tends to go backwards. Not now so much, um, but it's taken a while because you, you've got that performance versus injury thing haven't you and it's a bit of a tightrope that you're walking to try and uh, manage the athlete um it it is i compare it to uh mechanics who build f1 race cars think of the think of the number of mechanics in the uk Mm. there's there's probably ten thousand, but how many can produce that f1 race car mclaren or whatever it is year after year Mm. there's maybe two or three in the country. And I would put, um, elite performance trainers and coaches in the same category for Mm -hmm. uh, different sports as well, uh, to understand how to tune an F1 car is, is, is maybe not quite as difficult or challenging as tuning a uh, human being because of the greater variance. Mm. Let's come back to triathletes then Stuart. Um, you talked about that stiffness and you sort of in, intimated towards the core area, the, the sort of the, the main part of the upper body. Um, Tudor Bumper always says that you should, that one of his five principles for training was that you should start at the core and a bit like a ripple in a pond, you know, work outwards. Um, but I, I do feel like the core is a misunderstood part of the body. I hear people saying, yeah, I'm working on my core today. And then you see them just, spending their time doing crunches and sit-ups and nothing else. And if you ask them where their core is, they just put points this area around, um, you know, a few inches above and below the belly button. So can you explain to us what the core is, please? Uh, I'll try my best. The body is a linkage. So consider a backhoe, which is a tractor with a bucket on the front and a mechanical arm on the back that digs earth. The first thing that the operator of a backhoe does is put down the stabilizers, which are outriggers that go down into the ground and lift the tires off the ground to lock proximal stiffness, meaning that uh, you can't pull earth because the bucket grabbing the ground would just pull the tractor around. So you had to create an inertial mass locked into the ground. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there is the first principle of the core. So now consider my body. I am going to 
uh, do bench press as an example and develop my pec major muscle, which flexes the arm to create a forward pressing movement. As the muscle shortens distal to the ball and socket joint, it flexes the shoulder and creates the push pattern that is desired. But proximal, the muscle anchors to the rib cage. So when I contract proximally, it collapses my shoulder and body into the joint. So if all I use is a uniarticular pec major muscle, I simply collapse and don't create any external pushing at all. The goal is to create distal athleticism. I do it by locking down proximally. So 100% of that muscle's action crossing the ball and socket joint is directed distally to create the push. So it's no coincidence that the spine and the core has a ball and socket at either end. It is the most efficient way to uh, get distal athleticism out of this system. So we lock the core and control it to create arm power, force times velocity, to create hip power by locking the core, uh, et cetera. So if you want to jump higher, more core stiffness directs more power distally into the uh, thighs uh, and legs. So there's uh, a conversion of this idea of proximal stiffness and control unleashes distal athleticism. Uh, the next principle, and uh, I'll just pull another model out here, Simon. So there is a spine and it is a flexible rod. Well, what kind of engineer would design a uh, flexible rod and ask it to uh, bear a compressive load? So I'm just going to build a Rod. So there is a spine with uh, some ball and socket joints. Let's put a little bit of lordotic curve into it, a bit of kyphotic curve. And you see that that spine can, can survive perturbations. It can bear load. It can uh, create storage of elastic energy in the leg and push off with a pulse. Now I'm going to remove some of the stiffness and it just collapsed. So the next principle of core stability is you need what's called sufficient stiffness so that then the legs pushed, you talked about fell running, there would be a, a perfect example. As the power from one leg, it pushes, if it pushes rope, you lose power. Mm. If it pushes a stone, you've just transferred power now to propel the center of mass uh, up the hill. Um, now, the third principle has to do with pain. Uh, most back injuries involve an element of loss of stiffness. So we go back to this example where we have a micro movement and loss of stiffness. Or in a triathlete, we might see uh, pelvic ring laxity. So if I did excessive deep lunges... And we'll see this as an injury mechanism in, in a lot of triathletes as well. Uh, do, do you see that when I do a lunge, one ilium mutates forward, the other mutates backwards, mm -hmm. and it creates stress and micro-movements. Do you see the micro-movements occurring at the SI joints here and here? Yep. And that loose pelvic ring, particularly, I will say, after a bike crash. Bike crashes for triathletes are devastating. 
Mm. Those are the things that create some of these joint laxities that I'm talking about. Now, core stability is creating the barrel of the girdling musculature around the pelvic ring and the spine itself to stiffen and arrest the micro movements because it's the micro movements that are triggering pain. And if the athlete is able to do that, they can now train and compete without pain. So that's quite an expansion on what most people think about as core stability. I've put, tried to put it in very um, biophysical terms and mm -hmm. now go choose the training tools that are the most efficient tools to achieve what I've just uh, described. What, what issue in core stability or core training is the athlete having difficulty with? Maybe it's all three, maybe it's only one, but now go choose uh, the right tool uh, for them, considering the injury, their current fitness level, where mm. they have to get to, to be competitive, or maybe they're just training for fun and they want to be a fantastic 85 year old grandfather back off a little bit and leave some gas in the tank for when you're older. But anyway, there's probably much more information than you, you mm. were mm. looking for. And stability of the core um, involves more than just those muscles that are around the abdomen, don't they? I mean, things like the lats and the glutes and the, you know, lots of other things, the multifidus around the spine are all involved. It's not just the muscles that we can see looking back at us from of the mirror. Of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah. So to arrest those micro movements, you're creating a full coordinated effort mm. of the, uh, the corset, uh, the brachiating muscles of, uh, lat dorsi, uh, et cetera. Mm. So given that most people don't have the knowledge and, and intimate understanding of these, um, um, body parts and, um, areas that you've talked about, and they don't, and they have limited knowledge. Would you suggest that a good starting point for the majority of athletes is to go and see a professional like yourself or like a physiotherapist who can give them an assessment and tell them where they are, um, do have good um, stability and control and areas where they don't. So that gives them a basis for their initial program. Or would you say that they can just pick an off the shelf core strength program and get to work with that? Well, in my world, it is, uh, remember, all pain is specific and you need a thorough assessment mm -hmm. to uh, understand uh, that. Um, we've had a challenge in finding those kinds of experts. They exist, of course. Um, we, I had to put together a training program for clinicians a number of years ago. Some are physical therapists, some are chiropractors, some are physical medicine docs, some are trainers to conduct a very thorough assessment. And they're not taught this in school, believe it or not. And, uh, how to probe the system to reveal where the system is lacking, shall we say, and are not doing its job, and then uh, devise the right tools and the right technique and the right volume with the right rest, etc., to uh, get that person out of pain and, and back to uh, performance. 
So I, I don't know necessarily if it's physios. Some physios are outstanding. Some chiropractors are outstanding. Some aren't, but some professors are outstanding and some aren't. You know, it's the same with with, with every group. But um, uh, I'm reluctant to do this, but I will. Uh, I wrote a book for the lay public called Back Mechanic, and it guides the person through a self-assessment of their own pain triggers and core stability and this kind of thing, and then gives them training targets. So for those who don't have access to these experts, they can start there. Uh, I do have a, a, a book I wrote for clinicians. It's, it's a very heavy read. That's low back disorders. Uh, but that, that, that I wrote for clinicians, but anyway, there's a, a, a start on finding the person an expertise that can guide the athlete on an understanding of their particular situation and what to do about it. And unfortunately, some will have to help themselves. So that's why I wrote Back Mechanic. You mentioned to me before when we were when we were emailing about the triathletes that you'd seen and them coming to you with um, different injuries and challenges. When those people presented to you, were any of the injuries that they had career-ending? Uh, absolutely. Uh, a crash, uh, in, in the cycle phase can be devastating mm-hmm. here. We see broken shoulders, uh, damage to the <laughs> pelvic ring. Uh, you know, that, that SI joint instability that I was talking about, which again, if you're producing power on a bike frame or, uh, power on uh, during the run, uh, you have to have a very, uh, load bearing uh, pelvic ring, maybe not so much in the swim, but um, uh, I I, I hate to say this, Simon, I also see some career ending injuries in the weight room. Mm -hmm. Going back to that idea of some strength coaches believing that a triathlete will be a higher, a higher performance, more resilient athlete, the more they can deadlift. And I would argue not so at all. Uh, it's a little bit more strategic than that. Mm. Um, what we're going for there is the concept of sufficient strength, sufficient stiffness, sufficient tuned neurology, sufficient endurance, sufficient mobility. More of any one of those is a compromise. You can be too mobile, too strong, uh, uh, etc. Mm. Anyway, does that answer uh, the career ending? Uh... It, it does, yeah. But I, you know, my, ne- my I guess my next point going on from that is, let's say you had somebody who comes in to see you and they've got a back injury, but it's not career ending. It's just sort of hindering them a little bit. Um, how do you go about creating this training program to to either manage or relieve them of that back pain and get them back to the competition level they desire to be at? Yeah, that's a great question. The process always begins with a conversation, and it's a very frank conversation. And sometimes you'd be surprised, Simon, even with some high-level athletes, they haven't had this level of conversation Mm -hmm. before. And it begins, um, what are the demands of your sport? And they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, think it through. Draw for me your concept of what you need to create in your body to uh, be the best runner, the best swimmer, the best cyclist, and then transition from one of those (laughs) through to Mm -hmm. the next and to the next. 
And uh, some of them have never gone to that level of thought before. And I think, well, how do you know what you're training for if you don't know what they <laughs> what you're training for. Mm-hmm. So that is the is the start of it. And uh, throughout that whole thing, I'm doing pattern recognition. And then I get them to describe their symptoms. And again, I'm doing pattern recognition. Well, if I sit too long uh, at my desk or on the bus or on the train or something like this, uh, it causes my back pain. Triathlon training doesn't hurt my back. That might be another pattern. And I say, okay, well, we know what's going on there. Uh, you have a lifestyle consideration now, and you don't need to be an athlete when you're on the triathlon course or in the gym. You need to be an athlete 24-7 and be mindful of how you're sitting on the couch uh, and, uh, you know, these kinds of things. So it, it's uh, uh, a matter of pattern recognition uh, and really understanding their full life. Then I bring them down here to the clinic. By the way, that interview takes place upstairs in front of the fireplace, very strategically. And uh, that's not a joke, by the way. I need them to tell me things that they've never told other people before to really understand uh, their life. Then we come down here, and based on the patterns that we suspected upstairs, we come down here and test them. So is there joint instability? We do a a variety of uh, instability shear tests to the joints to see if that provokes their pain. If it does, immediately we we explore the antidote. Does a little bit of core bracing take the pain away? Maybe a pec-lat strategy takes the pain away. Maybe avoiding that specific in um uh, exercise and we're going to use a substitute for a while uh i gave the example of the belt squat machine as, as an example uh is is required and then the last bit of it is to create a progressive program um generally speaking triathletes are very good at training cycles so they'll say okay i i'm the next two weeks are consisting of this. This is the strategic rest. At the end of the two weeks, I take a deload three or four days off, etc. Some of the ones who aren't so good uh, overtrain, um, but the better ones have their cycles down. So I might work on cycles with them uh, and that kind of thing. Anyway, does that help with um, the, the process a little bit? Yeah, it does. Yes. And it, and it suggests to me that in the absence of being able to travel over to Ontario to meet you, what a lot of people that I know should be doing is trying to find themselves an equivalent professional that that is um, well versed in assessing this and guiding the athlete through an appropriate training program. So that that's an investment of time that I would highly recommend. I, I, I imagine you would too. Yeah, yes. Uh, before I see anyone, uh, it's mandatory that they read back mechanic. Uh, and then surprisingly, uh, most don't need to see me after that. Mm-hmm. They've dealt with it. Um, we do have a, what we call a master clinician in, uh, London, UK. His name is Joel Proskovitz. He is outstanding at, uh, diagnosing and assessing, uh, and creating, uh, training programs uh anyway there's a, a little bit of a, a okay. start on that so we uh, a moment ago i asked you to explain what the core was i 
you can't you can't pick up a fitness magazine these days without reading something about core training. So I wondered if you could outline what some of the biggest myths are that you've seen and <laughs> hear of regarding uh, core training. I should imagine that that's probably going to take a separate podcast. So maybe maybe hit me with the top three or four that you were uh, you see coming regularly that have you pulling your hair out. <laughs> or turning it white <laughs> or turning it white yeah um i will say this i i do get quoted a lot in these different fitness magazines and you know simon for the number i've probably done hundreds of quotes in different articles they never get it right so <laughs> you give a quote and then the editor massages it and you might have given a paragraph which was the absolute minimum to give background and context to the quote and the editor takes out two or three sentences so a lot of what you read that's the myth right there it isn't what the person said at all. So that's probably the the number uh, one myth. Um, but some people make it too complicated. Uh, the general program of training the core endurance, which is, uh, you, you know, uh, I get quoted a lot for, for these exercises called the McGill Big Three, which is mm -hmm. a bird dog form, uh, a side uh, bridge or a side plank form and a modified curl up or some form of a, a, a pulsing arm and leg uh, while laying on your back kind of a form. Uh, and they're generally 10 second holds built up for repetitions based on a Russian philosophy of training endurance without getting tired. Mm -hmm. So that's quite uh, in contrast to the Western philosophy of endurance training, which is keep doing it longer and longer and you'll challenge your endurance. But the Russians added a neural component where uh, they didn't want to, uh, they wanted to keep the neural system fresh mm. and produce endurance by repeated uh, holds. So if you're in pain, it's a 10 second uh, repeat cycle. When you're out of pain, you can consider uh, longer holds. Then strategic uh, ball and socket mobility, which are shoulders uh, and hips. And uh, if you're in pain, a walking program, uh, the more triggered a person is, the more frequently they walk, but having shorter walks. So we have some athletes who come in and they walk for uh, well, let's say they sit for 20 minutes, they stand for seven and they walk for three repeat. Wow. Mm. And that's where they start. And that's how they might dig themselves out of a hole, uh, to begin the program. Uh, but obviously as they become more robust, uh, the walks can be longer duration and less frequent until finally we get into things like, you know, single leg stance, bring the knee up, do a knee circle, uh, do a few little popping pulses. Now we're ready to start a light jog and then a few skips and mm -hmm. uh, th this kind, you know, the progressions into uh, mm. a core controlled, elastic, efficient runner. So there aren't really any big myths other than it just becomes too complicated and it doesn't need to be complicated. Keep it nice and simple. Well, uh, what I just said isn't so simple. Otherwise, I wouldn't need to see patients. Uh, they, they get polluted by either more is better 
or uh, considering the core in too small a way and not considering the core in the functional terms that I gave mm. earlier of mm. uh, tuning elasticity, allowing power created about the hips and shoulders to be transferred through the body and uh, creating a certain amount of stiffness to control any uh, triggering micro movements. Yeah, when I when I was listening to you talking about that, Stuart, I wrote down transference of power and I wrote down about um, exercises and or movements rather than muscles um, and doing something that involves the whole body rather than isolating something. So there is an element of stability whilst there's action at the other end. Um, is, is that more what you're alluding to here in terms of the types of thing that might make up a program? Well, it might do. Uh, there's certainly a time for isolationist training and there's certainly a time for a whole body, but uh, eventually you have to get to whole body. Mm. Mm. And it seems that you've mentioned sitting a lot as being a, a sort of like related to a lot of the problems here. And we talked about modern lifestyle. Um, do you think there's a place for I'm stood I'm stood at my own stand up desk now. Do you think stand up desks have a, a valid role to play in this in terms of helping people to move away from that sitting disorder that we all have? Absolutely they do. No question. So uh we will recommend those to people who are slaves to their computer job mm. and uh a sit stand workstation is uh, the key to avoiding the cumulative stresses that are leading to uh, pain. Mm. I've I've noticed though, even if I, I mean, I have a, I have an anti-fatigue mat as well, which makes things a lot easier um, when I'm standing here on the floor. Um, but, but I've also noticed that if I stand at this desk too long, I can start to adopt that posture. You see it sometimes in hairdressers where they sort of bend one knee and hinge off the other hip while they're, and they're transferring the body weight. So um, one of the things I, um, I picked up for my own physio was to to adjust your p position for work. You know, sometimes sit cross-legged on the floor. Sometimes I'll lie on the floor. Sometimes I will sit down, but I'll try and, um, and I'll sit on my Swiss ball. Other times I'll stand. So I'll, I'll keep moving position and I'm lucky enough to work from home. So I'd, I have a, a set of lightweight kettlebells here and I could go outside and walk around and get some fresh air. So I'm trying to keep moving um, so I'm not static in one position. Would that, would that be a reasonable um, uh, way to adjust one's lifestyle i don't know because i haven't assessed you okay all right yeah, that's not my world simon my, my my world is uh understanding the individual mm -hmm. not a category of athletes mm. okay so that person is coming to me with pain i have to understand that pathway and uh choose it now it may very well be uh, I mean, all what you said was was reasonable. I don't know if it's for you. Mm. Okay, let let me go back to the big three. I, if I type core exercises into YouTube, uh, they come up quite often, and I see them demonstrated by lots of people referring to you. And these are these are Dr. McGill's big three. I guess you. I, I assume you're going to take me back to what you just said about. Well, it depends on the person that I see presented in front of me. But if somebody was to go on YouTube and find those three core exercises, would that be a good starting point for somebody who hasn't done all of that assessment? Or, you know, do we go <laughs> do do we go back around in the circle to? I I can't say that because I haven't assessed them. It's astounding to me 
the people who put out YouTubes on this and they slaughter the exercises. They haven't a clue. And somehow YouTube has given them a forum to be a mm -hmm. pretend expert mm -hmm. and they haven't a clue. So uh, there are some really good ones. Uh, I know Brian Carroll put out a very nice discussion, but you know, I, people say, well, why don't I do them? And again, it depends on the person who's in front of me of, of how I will morph them. Some people, I, I get emails, oh, your, your, your big three don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'll, I'll humor them a little bit and I'll say, okay, let's go on FaceTime. Show me your big three. And they, have, they haven't a clue. They're doing the injury. They're replicating the injury mechanism while they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone might lift their leg way up too high. They've rotated their, their spine. Their pelvis is hiked up. And I'll say, lower your leg. Hover it off the floor. Push your heel away. Oh, they'll say, oh, my pain just went away. No kidding. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to understand through a, a, a 90 millisecond assessment just to watch them do it and to see that they hadn't a clue. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, having said that, uh, I will say this, you know, you look at the, the fastest man in the world sprinting, Usain Bolt, you know, he does the big three, uh, you know, the, the woman who won't run one CrossFit for a couple of years, so-called the fittest woman on the planet does the big three. Mm -hmm. So people say, oh, well, now can I progress and add weights to my ankles and arms? And I'll say, usually, no, we have other tools for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you've, you've lost the reason of why neurologically you're doing the big three. And what we found, and, and this was quite serendipitous, um, People will do the big three and they'll say, you know, I feel good afterwards. In fact, I, I have about a two hour period of resilience after doing them. And we'll say, yes, do the big three mid morning and do the big three mid afternoon. So there mm -hmm. is a programming morph now based on their particular pattern. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the mechanism we measured, uh, you know, the micro movement idea and the triggering of pain, mm -hmm. the brain remembers the side plank and the bird dog stiffness that the body just did and taught the brain that control. And that lasts for a few hours. There's, an, there's a residual stiffness in some people. It allows them to run and change direction faster, cut if they're a soccer player or a footballer, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people throw a little bit harder, a little bit faster. They skate a little bit faster, mm -hmm. uh, but they have to prime that neurological uh, system. So if that's the case, when they're doing the big three, make a fist, twist in with latissimus dorsi, really lock it, push the heel away. That would be a form of the big three for the person who has that particular neurological reaction. The next person doesn't have that. They don't have that neurology. So now do you see why it's so difficult to, mm -hmm. you can go and look at YouTube if you like. Um, you have just as much a chance of being messed up, I would say, as uh, really helping yourself. The science, some people will be critical and say, oh, the, the, this is, you're, you're making uh, much too much about uh, the specificity and the dose and, and whatnot. Um, but I don't think so. 
we're in the game of changing people's lives. What they're currently doing now, if they're in pain, isn't optimal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes a little bit of romance of their body to uh, find that point where the pain is gone and then stimulate the uh, the adaptations. Mm. I mean, I, I do like the idea of um, doing it every couple of hours because if that somebody was sitting at the desk all day, that would at least get them out of that position, wouldn't it? Um, well, if, if I get stuck and I have to uh, sit uh, in the morning and then I sit again in the afternoon, I'll do a few uh, of the big three exercises and it restores my uh, back mm -hmm. and hips and you know I've had a lot of injury <laughs> um, uh, but there you go but you know now I'm I'm 65 I, I I don't have all those instabilities anymore nature stiffened them out over time mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm okay now until you know I have my next round of male stupidity and then I do, I do like the idea of it being simple, Stuart. I know when you explained it, you said, "Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that simple." But I do, I do like the idea of just having three things that you can repeat and become. Back to your um, thing you mentioned earlier about the Olympic weightlifter only having one perfect squat in his life, or the the, the deadlift having one perfect squat in his life. You know, becoming absolutely expert and world-class at doing three movements rather than having a variety of 20 different movements that you're just average or below average at um but i do but again i think it's human nature to think well if i'm doing this then i can make it more complex and add this on and that on because that's got to be better which back to your point of more is better um there must be things that you see in the gym if you go there and allow yourself to observe other people that you wish they just wouldn't do when they think they're training the core, could you, would you be able to highlight any of those? Um, well, think are positively when, dangerous. When I was younger, I would, you know, be training myself and I'd go to a, a guest gym or the university gym and I'd go over and say something to the person. <laughs> and I, I learned quite quickly, don't do that. Mm. And uh, so, no, I, I don't, offer advice unless I'm asked. That's rule number one. But, uh, you know, I see people training until they break form with far too heavy a weight. And, uh, you know, I, I shake my head and I sort of have to let them, let them do it. Mm. Uh, you know, do, do, does your mother listen to you? Uh, I, I I don't know if you have a mother, but, <laughs> uh, you know, my, I don't have one either, obviously. But uh, when when my mother was around, she would say, oh, you, you don't know what you're doing. You can't help me. And, you know, she would never listen to me. Uh, so uh, she would do things that I would uh, cringe. And uh, so, yes, I see them using inappropriate weights with inappropriate forms, inappropriate programming where they're doing exercise after excess, uh, exercise building trauma rather than athleticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see people detuning their athleticism by not understanding the real goal here is elasticity uh, as an example, uh, not strength, or maybe it is strength, or uh, you know they're just uh, mobility deficit and they're doing more exercises to stiffen the thing that's already too stiff mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So again, I can't give you a specific unless we had a person in front of us and we uh, did an assessment to understand if they were tuned optimally or not. Stu, I had a, I had a couple of questions that came in from some of the people who are on my um, Facebook groups. Um, the first one uh, relates to osteoarthritis. So a simple question, does hip osteoarthritis lead to back pain generally? Absolutely, it does. So you're talking to uh, Stuart McGill. That's a Celtic name. The deepest hip sockets in Caucasian Europe belong to the Celts. You may have uh, heard this. So if we do a hip exam, uh, that hip comes up to about 90 degrees and then it squares across. Now, a more Eastern European hip, that knee will come right up into the armpit. Now, is that all uh the highest rate of hip dysplasia is in Poland. I don't know if you know this. So the, the shallowest genetic hip socket, uh, the epicenter is Poland, but Poland, Ukraine, Bulgaria, etc. Now, do all Poles have a, a shallow hip socket? No, I'm just talking about the uh, country average as an example. So hip dysplasia um, allows great hip mobility, but it also reduces the stability of the hip. But interestingly enough, if someone has a classic uh, Eastern European hip and you watch them do a lift from the floor, they don't fail pulling off the floor. They fail at lockout. The Celtic hip, the arch-typical one with a very deep hip socket, fails pulling the load off the floor, but never at lockout. When they get the bar past the knees, they hit second gear and pull through uh, with tremendous power production in the top half of the curve. So getting back to this idea of hip arthritis, I used to squat heavy and deep as a young silly man, uh, heavy hip arthritis. And uh, as my hips got bad, I couldn't flex. So when I would sit down, my spine had to bend because it was the only place where mobility was left. And uh, of course, it uh, created all kinds of back pathology. When I had uh, my hip motion restored by uh, some steel and plastic, uh, you know, the all the sitting stress in my spine went away. Uh, when I walked, I walked with a limp that was stressing the spine. So, of course, any compromise to the linkage is going to be seen elsewhere, but a hip is primary. So, hip arthritis absolutely leads to. Uh, and, and what? And what about issues. the other? What about the other way around? Then, if you had spinal osteoarthritis, does that lead to hip pain? The linkage, now you're going proximal to distal, not as much as hips affecting the spine. It would be less so from a mechanical point of view of the spine uh, affecting the, uh, the hips. But having said that, neurologically, it might. So osteoarthritis in the spine creates... Uh, irritation of nerve roots forming right. the sciatic nerve, the femoral nerve, and that will really compromise uh, hip function as well. So we did a study on uh, uh, hip pain where uh, we uh, I worked with an interventional radiologist who injected the hip joint for other reasons with a therapeutic arthrogram, created hip pain, and it shut down the gluteal muscles, uh, for example. People with back pain, not all, but some have 
a compromise of gluteal activation and they become hamstring dominant because mm-hmm. of their spine. Now, we then go to the work of Carol Lewis and, and Shirley Sarman. When the glutes are compromised because of a spine issue uh, and you do hip extension, the hamstring pushes the femoral head anteriorly into the front of the acetabulum, compounding hip arthritis. Mm-hmm. When you reintegrate uh, the gluteals through neurological programming exercise now, it pulls the femoral head back out of the impingement. So there is the pathway mm. from spine osteoarthritis causing hip pathology. So that's a, that's a neural pathway. Okay. I understand that one. Um, back to modern living and sitting um, quite often leads to tight psoas and tight hip flexors. Um, is that a cause of back pain as well? Um, I've, without, un- I've understood. Without pers- question. It is right. Okay. So it's absolutely without question. Now, is it in everybody? No, but an assessment will show that. So as the person stands up out of the chair, you see a difficulty and a reluctance to pull the hips through. Now, some people, when they sit up, they'll notice when they walk, they can't walk with a relaxed director spinae. It takes a while to pull the hips through, achieve the relaxation, and walk with a little bit of a relaxed, stacked mass. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's interesting. I can show you this if you like. They'll do a psoas uh, exercise, something like uh, they might put the uh, uh, leg up. Oh, I just got a hamstring cramp. Damn. <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking that might happen. But in any case, uh, trying to stretch the hip flexors, mm-hmm. which might stretch um, rectus femoris, iliacus, and psoas. But sitting isn't the neurological target for iliacus and rectus femoris. It truly is psoas, and we've measured this. So to stretch psoas specifically and separately from iliacus, in this particular case, I'm just doing a a split lunge, and now I'm going to push to the ceiling, uh, opening the psoas. It doesn't do anything to iliacus or rectus femoris. Mm. That's all psoas, and I can palpate psoas tendon. And I can feel a stretch now in the hip flexors, but nothing in psoas tendon. Mm. And it's not till I push my hand to the ceiling and then I drop my shoulder back and around. Now I've suddenly got psoas tension. Mm. Now a more curious thing happens. I learned this later in my career, Simon. I didn't appreciate the role of fascia in the elastic athlete. Uh. I do now. And it took me a long time. I used to think of muscles as agonists and antagonists and really Mm -hmm. breaking up the body into muscles. I no longer think that way with the evidence I've collected. Now I'm going to change that psoas stretch even again. Can you see my hand? Can you see it? Yep. So now I can feel my psoas tension and now I internally rotate my hand and I externally rotate through the shoulder and I change the psoas tension now. That's all through a fascial train. Right. So the science of Mm. really targeting the issue, is it a 
Uh, an anatomy train is described by Tom Myers with fascial considerations here. Uh, is it purely neurological uh, facilitation of the psoas, which often goes on with uh, neurological inhibition of the gluteals, but not always? Um, or is it a mechanical uh, tightness, shortening? Mm. Um, but I've learned so much more about the science and specificity of this and the actual release technique is dependent on the individual again, but there I've given you some insights and it's probably more information that it's not simple, <laughs> not I, in my world anyway. I'm, I really, I really appreciate the fact that you meant fascia, mentioned fascia there. My, my physio Louisa, who I've mentioned a lot on here, I call her the white witch because of her curative powers, but she is heavily into fascia and the role of fascia and um there's a there's a running coach called shane benzie he he wrote a book called the lost art of running um he he's at pains to say he's not a running coach he's a movement coach and he teaches people to move better but one of the things that's at the heart of the work that he does um and he's worked with a lot of elite athletes is to work on the fascia and i really wanted to get louisa and shane on as well to talk about fascia and you know movement and postural control and just how it affects everything in your life um it's it's a much a, a much understood and underrated and under under understood topic i feel i couldn't agree with you more mm. well yeah. maybe we maybe we should loop back and do another podcast in the future about fascia stewart and how that has an influence on all sorts of things including back pain well it's funny the uh, fascia research congress uh, was in Montreal this past year, and they asked me to do the keynote uh, lecture. And uh, I was very reluctant because I said, well, I really haven't done much work, specific experimentation on fascia. Um, but uh, there was a, a fellow named Bill Parisi who wrote a book on on fascial training, and he interviewed me, and he ended up doing a whole chapter on this. And uh, he brought out of me even though I hadn't done specific work on fascia, I had done enough work that suddenly the common element through the work was the fascial integration. And he brought out of me and, I, and it, just that night, it was in Las Vegas, we were together and uh, uh, he, he ended up writing the chapter. He recorded the whole thing. And I suddenly realized that I actually have done uh, mm. quite a bit of investigation, not on fascia, but how the fascia contributes to uh, uh, all of this. So um, it worked out uh, all right. And, and that was the foundation of the lecture that I gave. It started in 1985 when I started as a, a young professor and things that didn't make sense back then, but I didn't know enough about fascia to mm -hmm. explore and then how the common theme developed. And I, I mentioned, you know, when I was a young professor, I would teach first year biomechanics that we have a skeleton and agonists and antagonists, and they mm -hmm. work together to create movement. Doesn't work that way. The experiments that we did, how you can increase strength by, uh, you know, you, you might do a deadlift and how you work on stiffening before you even move the bar. And then you lock down the fascial trains from above, get all the slack out of the system. And then the final end, all you do is squeeze the bar and the bar starts to move. Mm. So, you know, I didn't 
understand how important to tighten the full body mm. made such a difference or yeah. just in arm wrestling as an example of how the whole body uh fascial system determines who wins at arm wrestling you you, you talked about um the russians and um the pause that's right the slow training the easy training i've i've read a bit of pavel sulin's stuff um he's very well known for his kettlebell work he, he wrote a book i think called easy strength um but also he talks about when you're doing kettlebell lifting particularly the overhead stuff is to is to sort of screw the shoulder down and to really tight create tightness before you do the lift and to lock the lats in order to be able to get the right amount of power through and the drive from the hips so um again i think that that's often missed by people when they're in the gym is is how much extra strength and easy strength they could get just by learning to to lock down things well creating strength is a science uh i know pavel very well he's a good friend uh i think i'm the only person in the world who's ever measured him mm -hmm. at feats of strength uh pavel is a fairly modest man mm -hmm. he's about my height uh he probably weighs something in in the same range he's not a big man but the strength that he can develop and i will say this he's got the strongest core i've ever measured wow. bar none Mm -hmm. so he's he has incredible knowledge he has an incredible body and he knows the science of how to pull strength so he could coach anyone to be stronger in a matter of minutes mm. and but but not by increasing muscle strength as most people would think about mm -hmm. but putting together the fascia the neurologic the, the the strength of mind uh, do, do you want to spend 30 seconds on what i've discovered with strength athletes oh sure i'd love to the ability to create strength th think of it it starts as a thought in the brain and then that thought gets translated into nerve impulses simply that the uh translation of the thought into nerve pulses is a skill and you have to be almost on the border of creating murder to create that rage to densify the neural drive now some people like i don't know if you remember bill kasmeyer who won mm -hmm. world's yeah, strongest yeah. man competition yep. so yeah, so bill says i i never used the rage i used the, the power of lightness and the Lord would invade my body. But nonetheless, it was still a strategy to densify that neural drive. Every successful strong man and strong woman that I know and have worked with have had this incredible strength of mind to densify the neural drive. And that's the beginning of it. And to put that through the whole body the way they do mm -hmm. is uh as i said it, it it's far more mental than the average lay person would ever uh mm. imagine so someone like pavel satsalin who can pull out these herculean feats from his quite modest body and and the great athletes uh you know it's uh when i get a uh, an older retired athlete from professional sport like say i get an old hockey player here or an old footballer mm -hmm. or something and i'd say you know 
who did you hate to play against? And and it wasn't that they were the dirty player or anything like that. It was the if you were on the hockey rink and you went into the corner with this guy, you were going to get beat up, not through being dirty. It's just they were stone. They were granite. And and the people that they mention are pretty much the same people every time. Mm-hmm. And they were modest men. Yeah. They, w- they weren't the big muscles and the strong. Or here's another one. You know, the uh, combat uh, sports that have really gained in popularity, like mm-hmm. the like the UFC and, and mixed martial arts being mm-hmm. one. Yep. Uh, I've worked with quite a number of uh, uh, UFC athletes now and, uh, well, other leagues as well. Let's just call them MMA athletes. And the ones who are more modest looking in their body are the killers. Yeah. The the strike forces that they create, the guys with the big muscles tend to push the punches rather than boom, snap. And uh, it, the power that they generate is is technique and what they do with their brains and, the, and their mind is is phenomenal. There's, there's something that I've learned um, about relaxed power is this ability to create that stiffness and generate that power. But at the moment you're about to release that punch or hit the golf ball or hit the, hit the tennis ball, there's an ability to relax so that that all flows through. And I've spoken to swimmers about that because if you try to swim fast when you're tense, it doesn't work, but you've got, you've got to put an awful lot of power into swimming, but being relaxed about it. And it's it. And I've, and I've picked up on that through a number of, um, conversations i've had with athletes and books that i've read and it seems like that there's something that they all do is they're able to generate power but they're able to just relax at exactly the right moment to make that power outage effective you're 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 becoming very wise simon (laughs) now you you take 100 uk strength coaches and say how many of you train the rate of relaxation what do you think the percentage of the hundred will be? Oh, it'll be in single figures if that. Uh, if that, yeah. And uh, what you just said was, how do you get a bigger snatch lift from Olympic lifting? You relax faster. Mm. Catch the bar. How do you run faster? You relax more strategically. How do you punch harder? You relax more creating closing velocity from your position of guard through to strike. Mm. And uh, I've measured in those top MMA athletes who strike the hardest, they relax six times faster than the Mm. average graduate student attending university. Mm. It's off the charts. Stuart, it's been fascinating. We've gone, we've gone, (laughs) we've got, we've got much further than I thought we would. It's been, uh, we've, we've almost, we've, we've, what an hour and a half at least um i've been uh, captivated by this thank you so much for sharing that knowledge i i'm going to put you i am going to put you on the spot now but you can handle it because you're a you're an expert um i always like to leave the listeners with two or three pieces of advice simple advice um condensed down from your years of experience and observation and prescription if there were three action points that people could take that they can get started with um can we leave them with them? Things to be thinking with as they go away today. Pain is not normal. Understand that you don't have non-specific pain. It's very specific. Go understand the specificity. That would be my first message. Then create a strategic plan to wind down the cause of the pain and uh, 
be strategic in understanding the demands of what is required of the person, be they an athlete or an office worker or the best grandfather on this planet, Mm -hmm. and train to create adaptations to achieve efficiency and sufficient athleticism. Not more athleticism, sufficient. The more athleticism most people will create, it will shorten their athletic careers and they'll be in the orthopedic surgeon's office having joint replacement when they're my age. Mm. Mm. So there's a a look from a a white-haired old man. A wise white-haired old man, Stuart. (laughs) Well, you should talk to my wife about that one. (laughs) Stuart McGill, Dr. Stuart McGill, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, knowledge, time with us today. I really appreciate it. And I do hope we can uh, do this again sometime, talking about something else. Okay. Thanks so much for your expertise, Simon. And uh, if folks uh, are interested in uh, any of the materials that I've mentioned, some of the clinicians perhaps, or some of the books, if they went to backfitpro.com, mm. which is our, our website, I, I must admit I'm, I'm not a social media uh, person, but uh, that's our website if anyone's interested. Well, I've, I've made a note of some of the things that you've talked about. So I'm going to highlight all of those in the show notes, including um, BackFit Pro, including uh, Back Mechanic book that you mentioned, and uh, uh, Joel, your master clinician in London, and some of those other things. So um, if, if people care to go there, they'll be able to find everything we've discussed. Great. Okay. Good luck to you, sir, in uh, Yorkshire. Thank you, Stuart. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Now. So long. Thank you again to Stuart for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. If you're interested in diving deeper into any of the topics we discuss, we've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive content and programs so we don't need to have any of those pesky paid adverts on the show. It's my goal to ensure that all of our SWAT members get back way more than the price of the subscription. And to that end, membership benefits include access to a growing library of training plans for endurance events covering triathlon, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo, cycle races, ultra trail runs, marathons, as well as more focused plans to help you build mobility strength and boost your FTP on the bike or your CSS pace in the pool. We also have monthly workshops, which are exclusive to SWAT members, free access for members to educational workshops on subjects like nutrition, sleep, strength, and much more. And we've got a growing number of discounts on partner products that I believe in and I use myself and which I do not get paid to promote. So if you'd like to learn more about this and access these member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonward.co.uk and click on the work with me button and then the swap button and you can also find a link for this in the show notes below you can also find me on twitter instagram and youtube as the triathlon coach or triathlon coach and please if you do go to itunes to subscribe please feel free to leave us a review on the apple Podcasts, and you can find a link for that in the show notes below so that's all for this week thank you very much again for being here and i will see you on the next episode